One of the things that I think is important for people to take away about, about this work and about ESG work in general is that, at least my view is that, I'll just call it sustainability writ large, is probably one of the biggest disruptive forces that many industries that we work in have in, have in front of us. I mean, if we think about a disruption as something that will shift the profit pool, and we think about ESG as a series of externalities with a very high and increasing cost that are not being paid for by all of the activities that create them, then just definitionally and mathematically is a huge disruption. Joining me today is Sasha Dusinowski, a partner in our Chicago office. Sasha joins us as part of our ESG series, where we've been spotlighting some of the leaders inside Bain, sharing our expertise, and touching on the importance of finding bold new ways to make a positive impact on our clients in our communities and inside Bain. In this episode, we'll discuss his journey from AC to partner, his focus on energy and natural resources and ESG, and a specific project he did with the Marshall Islands. Welcome, Sasha. Thank you, Keith. So, Sasha, I want to talk about your path to Michigan. Talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you chose your major and, and this college that you attended for undergrad. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I grew up in Saline, Michigan, which is right next to Ann Arbor. And then I went to the University of Michigan, which sounds a little bit like I just kind of packed up and went next door, but it was it was a little bit more of a complicated journey than that. So I grew up in this smallish town. And by the time I got to my senior year in high school, I really felt like I needed to get out and see the world. So I was an exchange student in Germany for a year, which was an interesting choice because I had taken three years of Spanish and didn't speak any any German at all. But I decided to just dive right into it, which um, if you know me, you know, it's something I just kind of do. But so I went to Germany and I lived there for a year. I went to high school. I lived with the host family many of whom spoke English and refused to speak English to me so I could learn German. And while over there, it was just eye-opening, right? And that's not even, the U.S. to Germany isn't probably the biggest cultural difference you can think of in the world. But for me at that time, it was it was significant. And it really got me interested in wanting to do something more more global in nature. And so I thought about international business as one potential area and foreign service or international policy as another. And so when I was looking at schools, um, I was actually in Germany applying to college. When I when I did that, I was looking at schools where I could do both. And Michigan actually, despite being just next door, was also a great opportunity for right. undergrad business studies and public policy studies. And so while you're at Michigan, did you continue to scratch that itch to see the world and get out a little bit? Yeah. So I discovered that freshman internships aren't really a thing. So I really had to look around for one, but I found I found an opportunity to go work in in a grocery store actually, uh, doing a variety of different things in Switzerland. So I worked at a at Negro, which was one of the two major grocers there, stocking shelves, doing marketing promotions all in Swiss German, which I also learned was not entirely the same as as the high German spoken in Germany where I live. Uh, so it was a really interesting experience. It got me exposed to, to to business and then international business in a somewhat different way. Then my sophomore year, again, looking around for internships, I applied to be an intern intern with the Foreign Service, which you needed a year of native language speaking experience, which my exchange year gave me and not very many people had. So I sort of rose to the top and got that internship. And I went and joined the, the American consulate in Munich as a rotational intern. So I did a bunch of different stuff that consulates do 
in other countries, which was a great way to get exposed to kind of my international foreign service potential opportunities. And you ended up doing that, working, I think, one more internship in the U.S., but you ended up coming to Bain after Michigan. And what was the inroads there? Because it seemed like you were on a pretty clear path with the Foreign Service and international relations up until that point. Yeah, so I, when I was at the consulate, I had a couple experiences where I sort of just got caught up in the complexities of what it means to be working in bureaucratic organizations with political appointees and things that are just right on the sweet spot of what some people want to do. And we're just right not on the sweet spot of what I wanted to do. And so that kind of pushed me back towards all the great experiences I'd had in international business. So I went back to Michigan and then my my junior year, I, I had studied marketing. So more like marketing analytics. I had worked in marketing for an automotive supplier and it was just not the sort of impact that I wanted to have. I got back to campus and I was kind of, disappointed in how my experience had played out. And I started to talk to people who had done consulting. And to be perfectly honest, I had, even in going into my senior year, still really no idea what consulting was. But when I learned about it, it sounded really, really interesting. And so recruiting happens really quickly after you get back to campus your senior year. So <laughs> right. right away, I was in interviews. And luckily, I was fortunate enough to get a job and just got more and more excited about it. And were there people or relationships that you had along the way that helped you with that? Because you're right, from a standing start, it's really hard, but it's even hard if people knew from the age of four they wanted to be in strategy consulting. So what did you do to get help? So I had I had a couple people that were a year ahead of me who had interned in consulting um, that I could go and, and talk to. And they were a little bit of a kind of debunk what things mean and what what it looks and feels like. And that that was really helpful. I had a couple people that were much further along in their career who who were friends of family or et cetera, who kind of knew what these firms were and had interacted mm-hmm. with them and could kind of at least validate, right? Like their experience was going to be far removed from mine, but at least validate that this was a path that people that people did. And then honestly a lot of it was meeting the people at the firm and just kind of saying intuition wise, does this feel, you can probably, you can usually tell a lot with your intuition. Does this feel like something that I'm going to want to do? Does this feel like a group of people that I'm going to want to get into? Because despite all of this other experience that it sounds like I have, like some total, I had worked like 20 to 30 weeks, right? Like these were short, short internships. So you kind of really have to rely on your gut, but it, again, I just kind of like jumped at the opportunity to go to Germany. I jumped at the opportunity to go to Bain um, and, I've enjoyed it so far. So as an AC, and and I was an AC as well, I know that it it really is formative in terms of your view of the business environment, the way companies work, the way industries work. What realizations did you have as an AC that maybe shaped your, your next steps in your career? A lot of my experience leading up to that point obviously was in an academic environment where you take a test and there's a right answer, or there's a you're exploring a well-developed perspective and trying to understand how someone else reached a, a conclusion. And what I got exposed to early on in my career was questions with ambiguous answers that nobody really knew what the answer was when we started. And to be able to go through that sort of that sort of process and align on, even as an AC, we as a team believe this is the right path forward in in a world of uncertainty and ambiguity was was really powerful. And then being able to sit in the rooms with the senior executives and 
watch those decisions be made, kind of like to be in the room where it happened in a lot of instances over and over and over was it was eye-opening as to like the opportunity that we that we have in order to go out and have formative experiences for ourselves but also for people around us yeah i remember having that experience a bunch even as an ac like you you see something on the news or in the newspaper and you're like yeah that was us yep she's like oh i i know how that happened and it was not nearly as easy as that executive just made it sound um, yeah, no, because by then you have conviction, or at least you're portraying conviction, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, you, like me, ended up leaving Bain after four years, I think, to go back to Harvard Business School. You know, was that an easy decision? Sounds like you'd already studied business, and I know that some people just say, ah, been there, done that, I'm good. To be honest, it was an easy decision. Part of the benefit of being here for four years is you get, I started to be a second-year consultant, and I got to see all of the post-MBA <laughs> consultants be a year into their job and start to use some of their business school experiences in their day-to-day day-to-day life. And I thought, wow, I don't, I don't have that. They like did like 1400 case studies or whatever HBS tells you it is. And I've done like seven or eight, you know, and, and I thought back on my own, I, I entertained the thought that I had studied business before for a little bit, but like when I was an undergrad, I did, I remember a case we did, the Army of One case, and it was all about organizational behavior and how does that slogan work for a military and things like that. I didn't have work experience at that point. Like, I'd never led a team of people. I'd never been in one of these rooms where it happened or or anything like that. And so I didn't really have the context to engage with that case study the way I felt like I could engage with it. Now with a few years of work experience, now with some of these these things behind me. So I found going back to business school to be a huge accelerant on my career. And I still think back to some of those case studies now, even, you know, I guess I'll go to my 10 year reunion soon, but largely because it was delayed because of COVID, but more than 10 years out. Now, while you were at HBS, you also met your life partner as well. How did that change your views on career and what you were trying to get post HBS? I think the biggest change it had is it expanded the important criteria in all of my decisions and made them more complicated. So yeah. whereas before, before I could think about like, I just, I want to get promoted and I want to do this type of stuff. And then, I mean, I was living in Chicago and Mia, my, my wife, um, fiance at the time was, was in New York and we were arguing about what city we were going to end up in. And that felt like a winnable argument for me, at least probably for her too at the time. And then I got a phone call and she had gotten a, a job in Hong Kong. Right. And which which is remember, not, not New York or close to Chicago. Or Chicago. Or I, I hadn't really even spent that much time really any in Asia. And I remember getting the phone call and she was, she was telling me this. And I remember just like standing there and I was like, I said to myself, I was like, you have to be excited about this. Like, you, like you, you may not be excited about this in this moment, but you have to be excited about it now. Say yes, be excited, because the only thing that she's going to be looking for is doubt, and that will cause her to second guess it. And this is an enormous opportunity for her. So you have to be excited. You can sort through your own feelings later. It's like all went through my head. And, right. split. and so we moved there. <laughs> you went from convincing yourself to be excited about it to moving in Hong Kong pretty quickly. How yeah. long from, from that call to when you actually made the move? It was a matter of months. And so right. I told her that she had to go there first because what was going to be the most frustrating thing was if we were there for two weeks and then she decided that she hated it and wanted to move back. <laughs> I'd gone through all these machinations. So I was like, you have to go there first. But 
I mean, I was a case team leader at the time. We've changed our, our position title since then. So manager in today's terms, up for senior manager. Right. And I remember walking in and saying, I'm, I need to move to Hong Kong. And the series of questions that followed was all the ones that you would expect a smart person to ask, like, have you been there before? Do you speak Cantonese or Mandarin? Why? And so we went through all of that. And it was like, it was sort of at the beginning, it was a like, wow, that's going to be really complicated given your promotion point, just a whole bunch of stuff. But at the end of the day, I was like, yeah, but my fiance is moving there and we're about to get married. And like, I'm not doing long distance to Hong Kong. And so everybody at that moment, when I, when it was like, that was the mindset that people were approaching the problem with, it actually moved pretty quickly. Mia went over there. I remember that year she went over there in June. I got promoted actually August 1st. And then uh, we got married August 13th. And then I was living in Hong Kong on August 14th. Yeah, lots of things come to mind hearing you describe that story. I think a lot of people don't always know or trust themselves to make the tough call for their career when it comes down to these type of life decisions. And as you said, your fiance is in China. You're going. The question is how. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we struggle to make, I think, at least for me, at least the way I think about it, we struggle to make those decisions because we're worried about the difficulties that we'll have with the decision that we want to make in in the near term. But the way I think about it is there's really no way I would have ever regretted that decision, right? Like there's a whole bunch of stuff that could have gone wrong and I never would have been like, and that was really stupid to do the thing that would have made my wife and life partner super happy, right? Now, on the other hand, if I had like really advocated staying here and not making that move and I might regret that, right? It might turn out all the ways I want it to turn out. I might regret that. So doing something for someone else is typically a thing that we can continue to live with, even if it's a hard thing to do at the time. Right. It's also worth noting, you asked two semi-rhetorical questions there. Had you been to China before and did you speak Cantonese or Mandarin? The answer to both of those questions was no, wasn't it? (laughs) The answer to both of those questions was no. So you get over to Hong Kong. How did your experience unfold over there? And how did you two do as a, as a newly married couple in a totally new country? When we got there, we hadn't discovered the mid-levels or the place where any of the other expats lived yet. In fact, actually, I didn't go to Hong Kong right away. After we got married, I flew back to Hong Kong with Mia. And then when she got she left the airport, I got on a connecting flight to Qingdao to go to the Asia-Pacific leadership team meeting to meet all of the people that work at Bain in China. And then the next day... And I landed in Qingdao, and I didn't know really how to get around anywhere. So luckily, there was a person holding a, a Bain sign. But then, so I went to that, and then immediately after that, I was doing work for a client in Beijing. And I, I flew to Beijing, and I, I knew I had a I had a reservation at the Hilton. And like someone who hasn't been to China before, I thought, I mean, how many Hiltons do you think there are in Beijing? Well, there's like a lot of them, and it's also not called Hilton. It's called a Chinese name and taxi drivers don't speak English. And it took me forever to get to this hotel because I just had no idea. Right. And so that's like, it was like going from after that week, it's like, that was kind of stressful, but I don't think it can get like significantly worse than this. We can solve the world's toughest business problems at Bain. And sometimes that might just be getting to our hotel. (laughs) Yes. 
sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's just showing up is half the battle. Exactly, exactly. So how did things unfold for you and Mia from there? You spent a couple of years in China, I think. I don't remember when the first addition to the family came, but was that over in China? It was. So we ended up staying in total, living in Hong Kong for three years. And our first, my daughter, was born in Hong Kong, which for us was actually fine. What was hard about it was being a 16-hour flight away from family. And so in that first year, grandparents on both sides saw, for the most part, saw our daughter for like two days in her first year. And we shortly after that got pregnant with our second, who was born 14 months after our first. And it was sort of like as we were going through that and it was becoming more real to us, you can't explain what it's like to have a kid your first child to someone who doesn't have one. It's kind of just so life altering Mm -hmm. and perspective changing. I find it hard at least. And as we were sitting there, just kind of like it was dawning on us what it was going to be like to have a family abroad. We both kind of decided that if we kept making decisions, do we stay six months more? Do we stay six months more? We probably would have kept saying yes. And then maybe many years down the road Mm -hmm. have decided that that maybe wasn't the right decision. So we force ourselves to take the long-term view, even though at that time it came it came at a cost for Mia and, and her career to come back. Uh, we decided that would be the best for our family. And so once you get back, you move back to the Chicago office, the family continues growing, right? We have five children now. From what age range? Almost one till nine. Awesome. Awesome. COVID was not lonely. COVID was definitely not lonely in the Dushnowski household. Luckily, <laughs> I've, I've met the whole clan and yep. uh, Mia is an amazing individual and person, and I'm sure is holding it down as best she can. Yes, she is. And part of the, the decisions that, we, that we've made when it comes to family and where we are in our lives now is they still continue to be intuition-driven visions. They, I mean, even when we had four, right? So that, which is still also a large number of children and we were, we were tired. It didn't feel to us like our family was complete. And we've made a lot of decisions using that. It doesn't feel like we're in the place we need to be right now type decisions. And so we decided that. And now, now I can say we feel complete. Okay. Um, so I was going to ask. Probably the number, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just like, You'd be amazed at how little sleep you can get um, or how much stress you can take or all of that if it's for something that you love, right? That's right. Absolutely right. Sasha, I want to get back to the work a little bit because once you all get settled back in Chicago, you did have the opportunity to do some pro bono work in Chicago and also do some sustainability work. Talk a little bit about that, because I know from just knowing you for over a decade, you've done work in ag and you've done work in energy and natural resources, but what was that adjustment like when you came back and how did you sort of cut your teeth in that space at Bain? Yeah, so when I came back to North America and Chicago specifically, I had just, despite having been part of the Chicago office for, for a really long time before I left, I had just, I'd been away. And the business environment particularly when you think back to when I was over there, which was 2011 to to 2014, I went over there and everything was growing 20%. It was like the base case for China was like 20% year over year growth of nearly everything. And and the U S was still, still post-financial crisis at that point. 
And so coming back into a just a completely different economic context, different types of companies, all that was just was really different. And I really wanted to get back into some of the areas that I knew that I knew and loved. And one of those is agriculture and agricultural related companies. There was the opportunity to do some some work that we were doing. We were going to do pro bono to work with a company to set a climate strategy. And it happened to be an agricultural client. And I tend to be very honest with people. The fact that it was a climate strategy was it was not the initial draw for right. me. Just it would have been for many people, but for me, it was working with a with an agricultural client that I felt like I could play a role in longer term at Bain. But that's I got started doing that, and it was one of just in terms of general ESG strategy. Again, this was I mean this was years ago now. But it ended up being one of the most intellectually complex, hard, ambiguous, strategic problems that I've ever worked on to this day. And that's what got me really, really excited about the space. Sasha, I want to talk a little bit about your time as a partner, because you come off of the experiences that you just talked about. You ultimately get promoted to partner and you continue to do ag work and natural resource work, but you also do a decent amount of pro bono work and some really interesting work. And I want to talk about one of those projects in particular, the one you did with the Marshall Islands. Can you set the stage and provide some context for people listening into what the challenge we were called in to to address was? Yeah, so the industry that we were working in specifically was wild-caught tuna that go into canned tuna that anyone in America can go into a grocery store and buy. And we were doing work in that industry because... It unfortunately has a lot of the types of ESG problems that we are hoping to solve more broadly, right? There's environmental issues around overfishing, illegal fishing, bycatch, pollution. There's issues, there's social issues around workers' rights and treatment and fair wages, and there's oversight and monitoring and governance issues. And so it's long been a hot topic. And we have been working for a while now in there, but we originally the, the question was, can you fix it? And it was an interesting question because <laughs> people have been trying to do that for like a really long time. For, ever since there's been video cameras, we've been trying to put them on on fishing vessels and get people to turn them on. And it's been it's been a really hard thing. It's been a really hard thing to do. The way I try to explain it to people is if someone said to you, if your insurance company came to you and said, we're going to let you opt into a program that allows us to videotape you driving. There's going to be really no benefit for you, but if we catch you doing anything, then we're probably going to increase your rates. Not very many people would probably sign up for that. Yes, that's super compelling. Not super compelling right. at all. But that's kind of what it is. And and so what we had to do is we had to rethink how does how does everything work? And once we started rethinking how does everything work to get to a point where we can put monitoring and enforcement into the into the value chain, we started to be able to ask a bunch of other questions, like how can we change a lot of other practices in the industry? How can we allow some of the, the developing economies where these activities take place to more fully and equitably participate in the profits that are generated by the industry? Things like that. And so it really, you know, sometimes you get a hard problem and you isolate down into a, to one part of it. You say, like, actually, I'm just going to I just want to focus on this. It allowed us to look at kind of everything. And so what our mandate was, was come up with a business model that will be more sustainable. And what, what's interesting there is, first of all, you set the context and said it's ESG and all three of those letters are in play. 
for what you all are working on. And more importantly, when you say you come up with a plan to fix it, you're not talking about something as micro as putting cameras on boats or paying people more. You're talking about end-to-end, the entire chain for tuna and fishing. Yeah, so what that what that meant was you kind of have to pick a starting point to, to do everything different just to even explain it. But the, the thing to me that was a, that was the starting point was, and this is true in a lot of other industries, and which is why I like going deep into it because you can see its applicability, is that it was it was some of the transaction mechanisms that created the incentives to do things that we didn't like to see, right? And one of those transaction mechanisms is if you're a fisher person you have a boat and you hire people and you go out on it and you catch fish and then you take your boat up to a nut to a vessel that's trading fish and you try to sell them. And if you think about that, you don't have to go to HBS and take negotiations to know that that's not like a super great negotiation position to be in. And so you really get squeezed, right? And so when you get really squeezed, on that type of activity, you start to do everything that you can to feed your family. And so you start to cut corners, you start to, there's a lot of things that you that, that, that you can do. And so the starting point that we had was, how do we change, how do we change a transaction mechanism? So rather than telling you what price we'll pay for fish after you've caught them, we'll tell you before. And by the way, we'll only buy them if your monitoring equipment is on all the time. And by the way, you have to bring them back to a dock so that your workers can leave if they want to while you're docked unloading the fish. By the way, those fish unloaded at port in Majuro are going to be processed initially by facilities that were built at the port. So it creates jobs. It creates jobs there. By the way, we take all of your video. And so if a customer downstream wants to know where was this fish caught, we can show them that fish being caught. And so that just that one transaction was the first dot that one transaction mechanism was the first domino to fall and a number of things that we could change. So then this, this entity, which is a JV between the Nature Conservancy and the Republic of the Marshall Islands, which in and of itself is a novel construct, that can now go and just offer a fundamentally different value proposition to anybody who's buying tuna to put it in the can. So I will encourage people listening to go back, just skip back about a minute and listen to the list of things that Sasha just rattled off, because any one of those is probably a huge problem in and of itself. And Sasha, I don't know, you just rattled off like six things all at once. It was like, oh, we'll do this and then you'll do that. That is not easy to do. I want to talk a little bit about the Nature Conservancy and the Marshall Islands because you mentioned the JV there, which again is probably a multi-month or year plus project on its own. But what is the nature of that JV and how did it, how does it play a factor in the work that you just described? Well, I think... It plays a role because we want we want countries like the Marshall Islands to be involved in this stuff, right? Like a lot of the history of some of these industries is they're extractive and the products go to developed markets. And so it's really important when you work with local communities that the local community has agency in designing the system that their community is going to take part in, right? And so they and any community that we would work with on food systems transformation topics are really, really important. And you can read anything that we do in our social impact practice, and you'll see that lens that we're putting on things. We're not just like creating a model or a white paper and then saying, this is what you should have done all along, right? And so they're a really important stakeholder. The other thing is that the Nature Conservancy is a big stakeholder. They have a ton of people on the ground who have been working in these industries for a really, really long time and really understand them and are really trusted to say, 
this solution is more sustainable, that solution is more sustainable than, you know, this one. And so having, you know, believing that you can solve these big complex problems on your own is maybe a recipe to feel good about yourself when you're on a soapbox, but it's not really a great recipe for impact. And so the more that we can bring people in, I think the better. Right. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the team. So for people listening, they say, wow, that sounds really amazing. Was it just Sasha, like going out talking to people sort of with this with this whiteboard? Or was there a team behind it? Were there ACs, were there consultants? You know, did we bring in other parts of Bain to help? How did, how did that come together? Yeah, so over the course of time, we brought in, we had multiple teams working on this topic in, in one way or another. And it was things like, I'm going to describe what's going to sound like typical consulting project work streams, which is kind of the point, but it was benchmarking other models of collaboration out there. It was modeling the economics of the value chain so that we can understand in its construct, how does it work? Are we, what are we making more expensive? Where can we save money? Because we wanted to get the product to shelf at not much more cost than it gets to shelf today we had to think about selling it, right? So we had a commercial work stream around who are the potential customers for this? How would this be positioned versus the other options that they have? Mm -hmm. All the things that are basic building blocks of business development were all things that, you know, we worked together with, we worked together with others on, but those were work streams that our teams actively contributed to or led. And we're also really proud of the impact that we have on our work. How would the results shaped up since since the work was completed? I assume it's still ongoing in some form, but where, where are things looking right now? It's still ongoing. The entity, they're off and running and building this, the, the value chain and, uh, and the supply chain partnerships that we help design in order to pull the product through. And if, I mean, if you, if you scale this through, the growth that we anticipate can happen, there's a couple things. So one is this entity alone would have a meaningful impact on countries like the Republic of the Marshall Islands. So if you take all of the economic, direct economic benefits from the entity, all the indirect ones, you can you can see a couple percentage points improvement in GDP. For the industry or the whole country? For the country. And the second thing is that what was interesting about setting this up as a as a JV with the Nature Conservancy is our dream scenario is this gets replicated by everybody else. And we've we've created an industry standard, right? And if you, if you flew, flow through that impact, then it's massive, right? Then we've, then we've disrupted an entire industry. The third thing is we hope that this is inspiration for other value chains. So right. my one worry is that it sounds like we talk about tuna a lot. And the reality is, is that this is a model that we're looking to deploy in as many places as have similar characteristics as this, as this industry. And we use this as a model of, end-to-end value chain collaboration or disruption in order to build more healthy, sustainable, inclusive food systems around the world. And so this is really, hopefully, I talked about dominoes falling. This is hopefully maybe one of many that we get the opportunity to work on in the coming in the coming years. Yeah, and that's also really great because we had Francois on the podcast as well, and he talked about sort of the overall value of the food system in the world and what it takes to make that sort of a net positive for humanity. And this is one example of a pretty big domino that that could have implications elsewhere. Yep. So, Sasha, as we start to wrap, I wanted to ask you a little bit 
more broadly about all the work that you're doing at Bain. Uh, we've talked a lot about the work that you did with the Marshall Islands and with the Nature Conservancy, but you're still doing corporate work too. It's not like you're just focused on pro bono work, which is probably not an economically sustainable model for the firm. But how does this fit in with your corporate work? Are you consciously doing this as a separate thing because it's something you're passionate about, or does it actually tie into the corporate work that you do? This is the pro bono work that I do is a critical component of the broader work that I do that has many components within it. And so what I am motivated and inspired by is the opportunity to create a more healthy, sustainable, inclusive set of food systems for the world. And I think corporations are a really important part of that. I studied business. I went to Harvard Business School. I can probably assume a lot about what my belief system might include. And you're probably right. I believe in markets. I believe in the value of, a, of an economy. I believe in people working within a set of rules and systems to generate profit as a motivating force to, to build things that we want to have in our world. And so most of my work is with companies and trying to help companies set strategies around what their choices, their strategic choices of where to play and how to win, what those could look like differently in the future. And the reason I do pro bono work, aside from the fact that I think it has an incredible impact and I get a ton of energy out of doing it, is because that is one of the many ways in which I can experiment and be disruptive and drive really big change that increases the portfolio of experiences and capabilities and result stories that I have to take to anybody and say, I can probably help you with what you need. So it's, it's, one, of, it's one of many things that I do, but there's a lot of corporate players in here. And my dream is that you know companies look at what we do in some of our pro bono work and say, not only can I do that, but I can create an extraordinary amount of societal and shareholder value in doing similar things. I'd like to hire Bain to help me do that. One of the things that stands out to me as you're describing this is that I think there are executives that really want to try and do the right thing, but it's often really difficult and often feels impossible. You know, it's not like we just started fishing a few years ago. People have been thinking about this for a really long time. And that says a lot about the type of work that we can do and the executives that want to work with us. Yeah, it is. And one of the things that I think is important for people to take away about about this work and about ESG work in general is that at least my view is that I'll just call it sustainability writ large is probably one of the biggest disruptive forces that many industries that we work in have in, have in front of us. I mean, if we think about a disruption as something that will shift the profit pool and we think about ESG as a series of externalities with a very high and increasing cost that are not being paid for by all of the activities that create them, then just definitionally and mathematically, it's a huge disruption. And if you think that big disruptions are going to change the way that companies make decisions on where to play and how to win, then it's hard to back into this and not think it's one of the most important strategic questions that are going to be sitting in front of any of the executives that we work with in any industry at some point in the next few years. I would I almost said in the next five years, and then I thought that's probably even too long. All right, like we're going to be in the forecast period that gets us to, or the strategy development period that gets us to 2030 goals and targets that people have put out there pretty quickly here. 
Very cool. Sasha, for people listening today, is there any bit of advice or words of wisdom that you would give them if they're interested in doing this type of work or this type of having this type of impact on the world? Yeah, you know, I think it's a few pieces of advice that I would have as I think back on my career, what's gotten me here, what moves me forward. One is this work didn't exist in the way it does today when I started as an AC, right? And so a lot of what I feel like I developed before I got here was the stuff that was going to make me into the type of business person that I needed to be to meet this moment in time when I had to make this really important decision to focus on this stuff. And if I think back to all the stuff that Bain did for me, it was prepare me to be the person that could go do the work that I just that I just talked about. So that's one, like you don't have to know exactly, you know, when you're writing a business school essay, at least like say something, but you don't have to know exactly what it's going to be, right? Right. Um, that's like, that's one thing. I think the second thing is that I think a lot about how do we make the world into the world that we want it to be? How do you be the change that you want to see? It all starts like whatever, whatever slogan you want to have around that. But this for me is an opportunity to address the problems that I see in a way that I believe will work. And I get a ton of energy about that. And I was, I was thinking about this the other day. I just walk around and I simultaneously have an intense dissatisfaction with the status quo and an incredible appreciation for the beauty of the world and humanity and the fact that I get to do this work. And it's like this duality that exists all the time. And if you can find the thing that you feel something even remotely similar to that way about, you will never run out of energy. You will probably only run out of time. And that's a great position. That's a really inspiring position for me to be in. I, I come to work every day and love what I do. Sasha, that is a great point to end on. I want to thank you for your time today. Like many of our guests, I've known you for a very long time, and it's just been awesome to spend this time with you, getting to hear your story and some of the work that you're doing. Thanks, Keith. Really appreciate the opportunity. 